Well, let's begin with prayer. Father, we stand with amazement at the display of your very Son, not merely because he saved us, but because he was your very imprint and substance. That lifts us up in a way that the cross can only enhance. We therefore ask you to help us to sort through these challenging questions that are before us tonight and to judge according to what the Spirit saith unto the church. Confirm the truth of who you are, who your Son is, and what he has done so graciously on our behalf. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. Last week we were talking about the types of revelation, and on the front page of that third handout we had lined out the distinction between the general and natural revelation as over against special and supernatural revelation. There was one distinction that we omitted, and I want to underscore that one before we proceed this evening, Uh, namely the fact that general or natural revelation cannot save. There is no plan of redemption in meditating at Picnic Point. There is no uh, cross of forgiveness in looking at the beautiful Cascades or Olympics or Mount Rainier or Mount Baker or any of the spectacular natural beauty of this area. It requires a special communication or a supernatural revelation for us to understand how we may come to God, how our sins may be forgiven. And so the proponent of natural religion whether he is a classic deist, and the deists believed that only the God of nature was sufficient, the God of Scripture was not necessary, there was no necessary revelation in Scripture, or at least nothing that could be more distinguished than what the God of nature taught. So the rule of judging the Bible by the deist was what the God of nature taught, which is the reason Thomas Jefferson wrote his own Jeffersonian Bible in which he gutted the Bible down to the religion of nature. That's classic uh, philosophical naturalism, but of course it is the romantic sentimentalism of nature lovers and nature worshipers even in our day and have been down through the centuries. That is fundamentally pagan, and paganism, which is naturalism, is hostily opposed to supernaturalism. And consequently, though the deists could agree on the God of creation or the God of providence, they would never agree that 
Jesus of Nazareth was the revelation of God, the Son of God, nor the Savior of sinners. He was simply a good moral person. Though that uh, distinction of those categories is essential to realizing why God has spoken in time past and in these last days spoken through his Son, which is the motif that we're looking at the finality of Revelation. Last week, we considered the finality of Revelation as it comes to its head in the charismatic movement and the claim to continuing miracles and continuing special revelations. Now, on the last page of that handout for uh, week for number three, uh, I want to look at another uh, group that claims continuing revelation as well as continuing miraculous charismata. The Roman Catholic Church has for centuries, in its doctrine of human tradition, claimed that some human traditions are given by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is what lies behind the famous two sources doctrine of Roman Catholic truth and authority, Two sources of truth, namely the truth that comes from the Bible. They do believe the Bible is the word of God and truth that comes from the Catholic tradition or the traditions that have been enshrined by the magisterium or the infallibility of the Pope. Now, the first canonization of this principle, namely it was inherent in medieval Christianity, but the first canonization of it came with the famous Roman Catholic Council of Trent in the 16th century. Now, the Roman Catholic Council of Trent was convened for one particular purpose, and that was to condemn Protestantism. It was the incipient counter-Reformation Roman Catholic Council. And it met, as you can see, for nearly 20 years And in that 20-year period, proceeded to meticulously condemn every distinctive of Protestantism from Scripture alone to justification by faith alone to the rejection of the transubstantiation of the body and bread of Christ, body and blood of Christ in the Lord's Supper. Extremely meticulous counsel, precisely articulating Roman Catholic doctrine, which by definition is irreformable, that is, cannot be changed. And in the first session of the Council of Trent, the bishops of the Roman Catholic Church declared that the traditions that the Roman Catholic Church asserted were infallible traditions were given by the dictation of the Holy Spirit. Not only is the Bible dictated by the Holy Spirit, but the infallible traditions have been dictated by the Holy Spirit. Now, Roman Catholics will disagree on the list of infallible traditions. Some of them will argue for nine. Some of them will argue for 12. One person once suggested Denzinger's and Caridian, the sources of Roman Catholic doctrine. That's a little overboard, as I think most Catholic theologians would admit. But nonetheless... They do agree on two, all of them. Whether they argue about how many others there may be, they agree on two infallible traditions dictated by the Holy Spirit. The first one was delivered in 1854. 
The second one was delivered in 1950. Now, it doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit hadn't dictated these prior to 1854-1950. It simply means that the church took a while to recognize the fact that the Holy Spirit had dictated them and then declared them recognizable Holy Spirit-inspired human traditions. In 1854, the Roman Catholic Church declared that the Immaculate Conception was infallible doctrine. Now, what is the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception? Maureen? That Mary was born immaculately without sin. Okay. It does not. I repeat, the Immaculate Conception does not refer to the virgin birth of Jesus. It rather imitates the virgin birth of Jesus, namely that he was born without sin, by saying that his mother had likewise also of necessity been born without sin. She was conceived by her mother and father immaculately, even as Jesus was conceived immaculately. Now, they don't suggest that she was conceived by the, by the Holy Spirit, but nonetheless, they do believe that she was conceived without the taint of original corruption. For after all, if she was going to bear the sinless son of God, she couldn't be tainted herself, right? And she could never be tainted thereafter because she was a perpetual virgin, right? That's the high watermark of marriage, right? To be a perpetual virgin and drive your husband crazy. That's the pinnacle of human womanhood. Human married womanhood. Get this. Do you understand this? She's put up on a pedestal as the thing to imitate. Perpetual virgin, though married to Joseph. Give me a break. That's madness. That's an absolute repudiation of what God gave marriage to be. And any woman that does it should immediately have the marriage annulled and the husband is free to go find someone who will be married to him. All right, well, the Immaculate Conception is a reflection on this elevation of the Virgin Mary to co-equal status with her son. So in 1950, not to be outdone, the Roman Catholic Church had another Marian year, another Marian year event. And what happened in 1950? Well, she was conceived the same way Jesus was, without sin, all right? She is as pure, virginal as Jesus is. So what is the next step? Robert? She becomes a co-mediator. Not yet. Not yet. You are anticipating them. But um, I have uh, primary document evidence that it may be the next one on the horizon. Now, before they declared her co-redemptrix. Mike? Assumption? Yes. In 1950, they declared that Mary was assumed into heaven in the body, even as Jesus was assumed into heaven in the body. As Jesus went up 
from the earth in Acts chapter 1. So the Virgin Mary was declared to have been assumed into heaven off of the earth. She did not die a normal human death. All right, so uh, these traditions, which are now uh, essential uh, parts of uh, Christian belief, according to the Roman Catholic Church, you cannot be a faithful believer. All the faithful will believe these teachings. These teachings are not found in the Bible, and they do not claim that they are. They are found in the voice, the living voice of Christ, which is enshrined in the tradition of the church, particularly in the papal declaration ex cathedra when he speaks from his papal chair and speaks infallibly to canonize something that has been recognized to be given by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. All right, now, in attestation of that, of course, there are the wonderful testimonies to the miracles that the Virgin Mary has performed at one shrine after another, from Guadalupe to Fatima to Lourdes and every other place, including the shrines in the backyard of your Roman Catholic neighbors. Now, this parallel of the claim that Mary has these uh, supernatural uh, endowments and endorsements goes hand in hand with the claim that she is the source of miraculous power and energy. And so the devotion to the Virgin Mary also grants her the same charismatic power that Jesus himself had. As you can see, as Robert pointed out a minute ago, the next logical step, in other words, if you've elevated her to this status, the next logical step is to make her a co-redemptress, an equal redeemer along with Jesus. Now, you may say, de facto, they treat her that way. That is, they pray to her as if she will then entreat Jesus to listen to their prayers. And so the rosary is, Hail Mary, Mother of God, the Lord is with thee, etc., etc., etc. It's a prayer addressed to the Virgin Mary in which they are invoking her assistance for their own blessing, salvation, etc., Well, one would not be surprised if they take that logical step and do what many in the Roman Catholic communion want to do and declare that she is an equal mediator or an equal redemptive mediator with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a kind of no-brainer. After having gone thus far, why wouldn't the Holy Spirit say, well... The only thing she didn't do is die on the cross, but she has the same equal and ultimate power of intercession as Jesus himself. Now, uh, here we have another Christian body, which, like the charismatic movement, claims to have additional revelations, additional revelations which are given by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And that body also claims the miraculous attestation of those revelations. The Roman Catholic Church has claimed that her truth, her proclamation, her foundation is based upon the continuing manifestation of God's endorsement of that claim. And God's continuing endorsement of that claim is based upon the fact that God performs miracles in the Roman Catholic communion. And therefore, you put two and two together. If in this church God continues to do miracles, then the truth of this church is endorsed and credited. And therefore, you're wrong if you don't belong to Holy Mother Church. You're more than wrong. You're going to hell. They can call you a separated brother or sister. 
But the only way they'll talk to you with any positive view of your destiny is to say that you have separated from us, but in your heart of hearts, you really are a true Roman Catholic. You live in invincible ignorance. But Martin Luther didn't live in invincible ignorance, even though they may have lifted the anathema against him. No, Martin Luther was consigned to hell by the bull of excommunication in 1521. Consequently, serious Roman Catholicism does not look favorably upon those who know what they believe and reject Holy Mother Church. Therefore, true believers will believe the true church. And those separated brethren who are stubborn will be more than separated brethren. They will be lost. All right. So when we summarize the uh, options that are out there with respect to this matter of special revelation, Roman Catholicism asserts an infallible Bible. They do believe that the Bible is infallible. Don't ever accuse a Roman Catholic of not believing the Bible is the word of God. They do believe it. Whether they treat it as the word of God, that's another matter. We're not talking about pragmatic. We're talking about what their doctrine. We're talking about their CC&D classes. We're talking about the, the Roman Catholic Catechism, which is posted on the Vatican website. You can go and read it in English. All right, they believe the Bible is the infallible and inspired word of God. But they also add to that infallible and inspired Holy Spirit human tradition. All of this is miraculously attested in ongoing charismata. And the most ordinary ongoing charismata or miraculous act is the transubstantiation of the bread and the wine into the very body and blood of Christ every time the Mass is consecrated by a Roman Catholic priest. Now, the charismatic movement also believes in an infallible Bible and infallible new special revelations given by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, miraculously attested, not through transubstantiation or miracles of the saints or the Virgin Mary, but charismatic gifts, speaking in tongues, miraculous healings, exorcisms, etc., etc. All of that pattern avoids the, shall we say, chicanery or the hocus pocus, which comes from the words in the Latin mass, which recited at the communion table, hocus corpus meum. And in the Middle Ages, people, when they heard it, knowing that the priest was working magic down there, they ran it together, say hocus, hocus pocus, hocus pocus, hocus corpus, hocus pocus. And so it came out hocus pocus, namely a magic rite was being exercised. Charismatic movement doesn't want to dabble in that superstition, but nonetheless, they want to continue the miraculous charismatic tradition. Orthodox Protestantism, in contrast to both of these movements, holds to an infallible Bible alone. Here's your sola scriptura. Revelation ceases with the Son of God and miracles cease with the apostles. That is the classic Protestant or evangelical answer. That's the 16th century historical response of Luther, Calvin, and others to the corruption of the Roman Catholic Church, the errors of the Roman Catholic Church, including the claim to have infallible traditions and miraculous continuations. All right, now, that, that positions this issue of revelation in the book of Hebrews 
in the, uh, shall we say, history of doctrine, in the current discussions, uh, in movements which still claim this. The Roman Catholic Church and its doctrine at Trent is still alive and well. Uh, so is the charismatic movement and its claim to have uh, special communications by the gift of the Holy Spirit and the miraculous attestation of those gifts. Protestantism classically and historically has repudiated both of those positions, and it has done so in part on the basis of Hebrews 1, 1, and 2. God spoke. He has spoken with finality. Not only are these the final days, the last days, but this is a finality of revelation given in the Son. When he could not speak of, when he could not speak uh, through anyone higher than his son, he had finished what he had to say. And now having inscripturated it, recorded it, it is there for your edification. All right, now I want to look next at uh, Revelation as uh, in its eschatological character or divine revelation in its eschatological character. And here, uh, what I'm driving at is this eschatological arena and the line of history which moves from creation to consummation and revelation pouring down from the mouth of God into the line of history. And that revelation ceasing with the death of Christ, resurrection of Christ, ascension of Christ, and the apostolic age will say, approximately 90 A.D. for uh, the Apostle John. All right. My emphasis here upon the eschatological character of Revelation is to uh, have you visualize the fact that this is the arena of God himself. And it is out of this arena that his, his revelation originates. In fact, it penetrates into history. It touches the line of history when... Adam receives it, Abel receives it, Enoch receives it, Noah receives it, Abraham receives it, and so on. This revelation touches the line of history as it impacts the lives of these people who hear the word of God. But notice that it is God's word and it comes out of this eschatological arena. So when I say that revelation is eschatological in its essence, in its in, in definition or by definition, I'm not primarily referring to eschatological times. I'm referring to the fact that it comes out of an eschatological source. It comes out of the arena of God himself. These are God's words that touch the line of history. Now, those words cease to emanate from God's uh, arena. In other words, he does not speak specially in this way. He speaks in this way through the book that contains it. And so this revelation is inscripturated, meaning it is recorded in writing 
and becomes the deposit of that uh, word of God, which continues to edify the church and to uh, convert sinners. So this uh, character of revelation uh, reminds us that it is coming out of the arena of God himself, which is the arena of the eschaton. All right, now, when the writer of Hebrews says that God spoke in former times to the the fathers by the prophets and has spoken to us in these last times through his son, he is talking about the relationship between this former era in the history of redemption and this last era in the history of redemption. Now, you notice my circles overlap the lines. Almost looks like I'm Van Til Hill, drawing circles and lines. <laughs> right, Pete? Well, I tried. Anyway, <clears throat> there is a connection between the circles there on the line of history. <clears throat> that is, <clears throat> our author here is uh, attempting to portray a rudimentary philosophy of the history of Revelation, or a philosophy of Revelation. Now, this isn't a fancy uh, uh, philosophy discussion here. It's just simply saying he has a conceptual uh, description of the fact that there is a relationship between the the revelation of the former era and the revelation of this last era, and that relationship flows along the line of history. Those revelations are both the word of God, but they are word of God that are organically connected. They have a relationship of a kind of unfolding drama built into them. Now, this statement that he makes here is integrating that whole concept. So, as I said, we have here the beginning of a way of looking at revelation in terms of a philosophy of how it is integrated, how it originates in God himself, how it impacts the former fathers of the old era, and how it impacts us in the last days through his son, all of which occurs in the arena of the historical continuum. All right, now, the development of that is going to be worked out by our author when he comes to chapter 11. He's going to actually begin to give us a hermeneutic based upon his history of revelation. But this revelation is revelation odd extra. Odd extra. And what does that Latin phrase mean? Anyone? From the outside. Or to the outside. All right, so this revelation is coming from God, and it is going to that which is outside of him, to the fathers, through the prophets in time past, and to us through the Son in these last days. This is revelation which is coming out of God to that which is external to him. Well, what about revelation Odd intra. What about Revelation
inside the Godhead? Or don't you think that that's there? Let's ask ourselves this question. Since our author raises the issue of revelation ad extra, is there revelation ad intra? And the question of the Trinity and revelation without anything outside of the Trinity at all. Now, you may respond to me that that's a little complex, but I want you to think about nothing but God for a moment. And our author has said God speaks. So we have a speaker. Inside the Godhead, we have a speaker. If we have a speaker, what must we also have? Someone who listens. Someone who listens, exactly. A hearer. For God to speak within the Godhead necessitates a hearer, or to speak into nothingness is to speak to nothingness. Or it would mean he would be what? Not Trinitarian. Not Trinitarian. He would be not Trinitarian, he would be... What's the opposite of the Trinitarian? Unitarian. He would be Unitarian. All right, I want to uh, exploit that a little more later, but I want you to, when you say that God speaks, as our author says, it is true that he is talking here about speech ad extra, that is, to the recipients of revelation in history outside of himself. But let's press that question back a step. Are we allowed to do that? Well, of course we are. We are allowed to think the thoughts of God after him. We are allowed to attempt to understand the mind of God in God's mind working apart from any created existence. Calvin will say you're presumptuous. Calvin's a little lazy. Jonathan Edwards will not say that's presumptuous. Jonathan Edwards will bend his mind to understand the mind of God in itself. Now, Edwards won't be right about all of that, but he will press to penetrate to the limits of his own finite intellect And he won't hesitate to ask the question, to whom does God speak in the Trinitarian Council? To one who hears him. And who is the one who hears the speaker? 
He is the Son of God. Exactly. So, already we have a father and son tandem when we're saying revelation ad intra. Ad intra. Inside the Trinity. Well, if we have a speaker and a hearer of what is spoken, what remains? The voice that unites them. The voice that unites them. The voice that unites them. Uh, um, I'm... I'm I'm uh, groping here, and I, I like the suggestion. Uh, another suggestion? The one who does what they are conversing about, so the actor of the conversation. Mm, okay. Now that raises the question of what is God in pure act ad intra, and I don't really want to press that one too far. Uh, but you're 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 sensing something uh, that you know. I, as I say, I'm groping after. Uh, what I'm going to suggest is the preserver. The preserver of that speech, hearing, and revelation odd intra. Maybe that's not the best choice of words. But nonetheless, we have another uh, person involved in the revelatory dynamic. And he performs a function which classic Christianity has said has to do with procession, the procession of revelation, as he himself processes from the Father and the Son according to the Gospel of John. So if you look at your outline, I note the inception of revelation, the reception of revelation, and the procession of revelation as we think of revelation ad intra. The inception of revelation with the Father, the reception of revelation with the Son, the procession of revelation with the Holy Spirit. Now we're talking about revelation as an ontological reality. Don't be put off by the word ontological yet. Uh, I want to talk about it uh, with the next handout in some detail. But when we describe this ontological process, we are talking about what it is that is peculiar to God in and of himself. Thinking about God without the creation. Thinking about God without anything outside of himself. Thinking about God alone, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And what is going on in God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit from all eternity? They're speechless. They're silent. They don't communion with one another. They don't interact. There is no inter-Trinitarian, interpersonal relationship between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You know you don't want to say that. So having realized that these three persons are interrelated eternally in the eternal Godhead before there is ever any created order. Once upon a time, there was nothing but God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit forever. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What were God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit doing forever before there was ever anything? 
They are communing with one another. They have this interrelationship. They are speaking, hearing, recording or preserving or processing that revelation. I don't mean processing, processing it between the three of them. Have I piqued your interest? Have I suggested another way of approaching revelation in terms of the ontological trinity? Well, if you think it's esoteric, then let's start with a verse that you know very well. God is love. 1 John 4.16 God is love. But if God is love, then there must be a beloved of the love of God. True? So who is the beloved of the love of God? The Son of God is beloved of the Father. You see, to take that verse and just simply think of it in terms of an emotion or an ethical vector, which is not incorrect, but to think of it only that way is to miss a part of its profundity. For to say God is love, if we are, if we are saying ad intra, we have immediately said there is a beloved of the love of God, another person. And then, if there is a lover and a beloved, then there is a lover who intertwines the beloved and the lover and that one who intertwines both and reciprocally encircles the three with the band of affection forever. Ontologically, eternally. All right. A simple verse that every child knows, God is love, is in fact a profound reflection on the nature of the Trinity. Because you can't say God is love without saying that God in loving had a beloved whom he loved. No, not just you and me saved by grace, though that is a wonderful gift, but his own dear son before you and me. You are being given the same thing that he has eternally given to his son. Do you see, God is love is not a moralistic reduction. It is an invitation for you to stand in the same relationship as the Son of God stands with the Father insofar as a creature can stand in that relation. You should be dropping your non-false teeth at that. You should be absolutely aghast at that. You should go home tonight and fall on your knees and say, Almighty God, for the love of Christ. 
so great was your love for this wretched soul to give you the privilege of a son of God, son or daughter of God. Do you see it? you see it? All right. The last part of that page is a reflection on what one observed a few moments ago, namely, the Unitarian God is a God who is alone. He is not only alone, he is a cosmic narcissist. For the narcissistic God of Unitarianism, which includes Judaism, Islam, and Socinianism, or 16th century Unitarian paganism, The narcissistic God of Unitarianism speaks to himself only, reveals himself to himself only, discloses himself to himself only. He is eternally solitary. He is eternally self-centered. The Unitarian God is an eternal narcissist. Is that an attractive God? I think not. Most of us aren't attracted to narcissistic personalities. We, in fact, begin to dread them because they are stuck on themselves. There is no one else in their purview except themselves. And we increasingly live in a culture in which that is commended. To be all you can be. To be yourself. That is the gospel of narcissism. Which, of course, is the gospel of enlightened paganism. Because there's no one else for you to think about, really. Not even your wife. Not even your children. Because you are the center of the universe. And so here is a religion. Here are various religions. Here are world religions which assert this self-centered deity. A deity who can only create because he's lonely and needs somebody to entertain him. Now, I'm being a bit pejorative there, and I'm doing it on purpose because I want to show the implication of what this amounts to. If there is only one God in one person, if that is true, then such a God is selfish, self-centered, narcissistically self-centered, and the only reason he would create is to entertain himself. Isn't that what the narcissist does? The narcissist never moves outside of himself except to get his jollies, except to get his entertainment, except to reinforce himself or herself. Because my navel is the center of the universe. That's the gospel of narcissism. It's all about me, me, me. And you're going to hear a lot about that in the next 30 days as you move towards the poles. Me, me, me. All right. 
the communalistic God of Trinitarianism. Now, I don't mean communistic, though I almost blurted it out. The communalistic, meaning he communes, as Cheryl pointed out a little bit ago, he communes with himself. He communes with the three persons of the God. He speaks to his son through his spirit, through his breath, using the root meaning of the Greek word pneuma, actually ruah as well, in the Hebrew breath of God. Father discloses himself to the son. Both proceed to reveal themselves to the spirit who breathes that self-revelation of the inter-Trinitarian intimacy within the circle of the Godhead. This is my attempt to describe this intra-Trinitarian self-disclosure and self-revelation. If there is self-disclosure of God to us, there is first of all self-disclosure of the persons of the Godhead to one another before they ever disclose themselves to us. The priority of God in his own communing inter-Trinitarian fellowship is the foundation of the communing instinct in all human beings. It is part of the imago dei that has been placed in us. Well, these three co-equal and co-eternal persons are not solitary. They are not self-centered. They are eternally self-communicative and other-oriented. They communicate with themselves Always, forever, at every moment. And so you'll notice that the communion is not merely comparative. That is, better to have two than one. The communion is superlative. The best communion is three. Not two. Not one but a trifecta. The most perfect ontological intercommunion is found in a triune Godhead. Not a Unitarian Godhead, not a Binitarian Godhead, but a Trinitarian Godhead. And therefore, you see why this is necessary, this paradigm of speaker, hearer, and recorder or processor of the revelation. It must, of necessity, be the best of communions, three instead of one, three instead of two. Three is the perfect triangle of intercommunion. Perfect isosceles triangle of intercommunion. And now you understand why the Trinity has been diagrammed as a perfect isosceles triangle down through the ages from the primitive church on. Yes, they have sensed something in that diagram schematic. Well then, why does such a God create? Not out of necessity, but for his own glory. That is, that the creature may share. The creature may share the glory of God. In other words, in in revealing himself odd extra, he is displaying in measure the odd intra glory that he wants the odd extra creature to to possess and enjoy. The chief end of your life is to enjoy God forever. 
Think of that when you walk into church Sunday. Smile. Smile. As if you are enjoying God's hour of worship. Because that's what he's inviting you to. He's inviting you to enjoy his glory. He really wants you to delight in him as he delights in you. That's what the Psalms say. The Psalms talk about the mutual intercommunion of delight between God and the psalmist. It's coming out of God's odd intra-Trinitarian character. And here, once again, you see, to reflect or participate or share the glory of God, you are being given access to what has eternally been the resplendence of their own being forever and ever and ever. He's going to let you in on the drama and glorify you. Well, you dropped your knees twice tonight. So, insofar as a creature can share this glory, so God grants it to the creature because he wants you to enjoy his glory. The glory of the Father, the glory of the Son, and the glory of the Holy Spirit, a never-ending glory, an unspeakable glory. Do you have any response or comments on any of that as I've pushed the envelope a little bit, I hope? Or at least, set your wheels to turning, maybe. Even from the simple verse, God is love. Scott? Um, I'm I'm anticipating an objection to your exegetical thing, and I have a a tentative answer, and I'm curious what yours is. Um, One is, someone might say, well, then God God also exerts wrath. He is also Jacob, I love Esau, I hate it. Would that then reveal God is a hating God who hates from all eternity? Uh, I'm assuming you're going to say all those negatives are always the obverse of something that must be true in God, such as his love. Um, They don't reveal that he's himself hated from eternity, but they reveal what you're talking about. How, How would you go about answering that? Uh, Yes, I I think the obverse is a a clear reflection of what is encountered in the objection to God. In other words, that which is opposing him. Here, we're not thinking so much about the eternal decrees as we're thinking about the eternal interpersonal relationship within the Godhead. Um, Out of that is going to arise, of course, a resistance to that which opposes him. But nonetheless, I'm... I'm drawing attention to the surpassing excellence of God himself without the uh, uh, the via negativa at this point. Now, when I get, get to the revealed attributes of God, then I'm going to have to do that. But right here, I want to, you know, 
ad intra, God alone, nothing else except the communion, the face-to-face interrelationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Yes, right. When you when you talk about uh, the exception, the reception and procession of God, uh, can can a God, small g of the Unitarianism of uh, Islam, is there there such a thing? Can you call him that? No, because the one person, when he uh, uh, reveals, must have a creature through whom the revelation is received. For instance, Muhammad in the case of Islam, Moses in the case of Judaism for the most part. And the point there is that uh, that second being, uh, you can even call it divine wisdom, uh, you can call it the Son of God, but the Son of God is a creature. He's a manufactured being. He is not an eternal ontological being. They are adamantly opposed to that. And it was to suggest that the Son of God is as eternal as the God who is the soul God, the Unitarian God. Same way with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit would not be a person at all. He would be a power, an impersonal force. That is a force like the wind with no personality. So reducing those other two categories to the to the level of creation, to being creatures. See, they leave the solitary God, one person, one God. Any other comments? Stephen? Is, is this related to what, what theologians talk about, the, the, uh, the inter-Trinitarian covenant, the covenant of redemption, those sorts of... Uh, this is a, a place where they uh, reflect upon that, um, uh, yes, eternal covenant of redemption. They're looking at it as they think it arises out of the inter-Trinitarian council. Once again, uh, that's focusing on something that comes out of the result of the decree for creation, redemption, etc. And I, I, don't, I don't want to go that direction, though I don't want to isolate. I mean, I, it's, it's, it's going to come out of any subsequent discussion, but... I'm just trying to get you to subtract all of that out just to think for a moment about this issue of revelation inside the Trinity. Revelation to the, the persons in the Trinity themselves. Not the whole history of, rede- history of revelation, not the whole history of redemption, but interpersonal rele- revelation. They speak to one another. They love one another. They commune with one another. All right, now, um, before I uh, let you go to your break, uh, a footnote on what produced this. Um, I spent some of the summer thinking through this and being uh, marvelously stimulated by Jonathan Edwards. And Jonathan Edwards' amazing discourse on the Trinity. Uh, It is not available except in the Yale edition of the Collected Works of Edwards. And uh, most of you will know that when I say that, that means a very expensive uh, volume. But uh, nonetheless, uh, it is, you can photocopy it. Uh, It's less than 40 pages. 
He wrote it when he was in his late 20s. It absolutely blows your socks off. Now, I'm not encouraging you to go out and read the Edwards Treatise, though I won't discourage you from it either, because it is quite challenging. But it is the thing that kind of uh, awakened me from my dogmatic slumbers, if I can coin a phrase, uh, to, to, to think more inter-Trinitarianly about this Trinitarian revelation. And so, uh, for good or ill, um, uh, there it is. And I want to give Edwards the credit for pushing my brain and forcing me to think of what God is in his own aseity, triune aseity. Yes, Art? Did you say this was not available on the website? It is not available on the website. You can see the footnotes to the edition on the website, but you cannot see the text itself. So if you can find the library or if you want uh, me to Xerox my copy, just harass me and I'll be glad to give it to you. I'll be glad to make you a copy. Uh, if, you, if you want to find a library that has it, uh, you can look up on the Yale, set, Yale site of the edition of Edwards' work and get the volume number. I can't remember what volume it is, maybe 26 or something like that. It was published in the 19th century, but this uh, current edition is a critical edition, very well translated and Excellent footnotes. I'm not interested in the footnotes so much as I'm interested in what Edwards is saying. I mean, after all, this seminary stands for primary documents. It doesn't stand for secondary sources. <clears throat> well, it does to a certain degree. But I want you to read the primary sources, and I had a great time reading Edwards' on, uh, discourse on the Trinity this summer. set of handouts, the handout labeled number four, and there should be enough of them to go around to everyone that wants one. Uh, I only brought copies, a few copies of number three for those that weren't here last week, but if you haven't gotten a, a copy, it looks like they're all gone anyway, so... We're moving on to the rest of the exordium, that is, the long opening verse of Hebrews 1, and now verse 2b through 4. And I raised the question in the beginning of the structure of this section and actually a little bit beyond it. Because I want you to take a look at verses 2 through 4 and see if you detect yourself any kind of potentially structuring element there. You're looking for two elements. They will be number 1 and 2 on your outline. Just scan verses 2b through 4 and see if anything 
kind of jumps out at you. stand on ceremony if you see anything. Yes, Kristen? Do you have heir in verse 2 and inheritance in verse 4? Excellent. That's exactly right. Those two words are out of the same Greek root. And so at the beginning of this portion of the exordium, we have heir in 2b, and we have a cognate inherited in verse 4b. The beginning and end of this portion of the exordium is framed. It is framed by a duplicate verbal root in the Greek text. So the bracket of this frame sets this unit apart as its own distinct element. In other words... I'm not arguing necessarily for an inclusio here. I am suggesting a framing or bracketing device that contains or delimits a unit of expression. Okay? The expressions that are found from verse 2b through 4b. But before we take a look in detail at that concatenation, let's look at one more example of that word or that root, inherit. Cast your eye down to verse 14. Once again, in the Greek text, it is the same root word. All right, so we have three instances. Air in one to be uh, inherited in 1.4b and inherit in 1.14 at the end of the chapter. All right, now, uh, going back to the beginning and end of the exordium, where uh, inherit, where air begins uh, in 2b and inherited ends in 4b. Let's look at that. We have a concatenation here. The word concatenation means chain-linked, means chain-linked. It's like a chain-link fence. We have clauses which are linked together here. And you will notice that I have seven slots on your outline. Uh, This uh, exordium, uh, this portion of the exordium, which is its own unit. Notice we've framed or bracketed it, okay? This portion of the exordium has its own connectional linkage. And there are seven links to the chain. The perfect number. But who are we talking about? Who is the author talking about in this concatenation? The Son of God, the most perfect person the most perfect number of concatenated, chain-linked clauses. All right, now what do we notice about the first two clauses as you see them 
in your English translation. There is something that is common to the first two clauses. You can even see it in your English Bible. They both contain... Ben? Who or whom? They both contain... What do you call that? What kind of a part of speech is that, Ben? It is a relative pronoun. Yes, these are relative clauses. So, for the first... Uh, part of the concatenation is who was appointed heir. The second is through whom he created the world. All right, so we have two relative clauses which are concatenated, linked together by the fact that they are relative clauses. They begin with relative pronouns. Now, in verse 3, does anyone have the New, Amer- the New International in front of them, the New International Version? How does it read, Marge? This beginning verse 3. The sun is the radiance of God's glory. Okay, once again, the New International has mistranslated the uh, Greek text. Now, the New American Standard also has mistranslated. It begins with a full stop, puts a period at the end of verse 2 and says, and he is the radiance. But at least the New, New American Standard does what the New International does not do. You don't have a footnote, do you, Marge, on verse 3? You don't have a marginal reading, do you? No. But the New American Standard does give you a marginal reading. Why? Because it at least gives you the advantage of seeing what the Greek text says in the margin and literally translate, as the footnote indicates, who being, which is what the Greek text says. Who being. We have another what, Ben? We have another relative clause, another relative pronoun. Okay? who being the radiance of his glory. All right, so the third concatenation is a compound, notice, who being the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. That is a compound relative clause. Leads us to number four. And upholds all things by the word of his power. Now, I'm going to argue that that is also a relative clause, though there is no relative pronoun in the original text. And why am I going to suggest that? Because it is concatenated with the previous three relatives and is implicit. You could say and who upholding all things, because it is actually an active participle there. So I'm going to put who in brackets for number four, plus upholding. As I'm going to put who not in brackets in number three, and being, active participle. Now we come to number five. When he made purification for sins, referring to what? Anyone? The son. Referring to what, not who? Crucifixion. You're good on relatives. Crucifixion. Crucifixion. Very good. All right. So we have the purification of sins at the cross in number five, followed by what's next? The session of the sun. 
the session of the sun. Why do Protestant Presbyterian Church have sessions? Because they sit. They sit, even as the Son sits at the right hand of the Father. So the session of the Son at the right hand of glory for number six. And we conclude with verse four. He is better than the angels. Better than the angels. Now, let's think about what the author has strung together. What has he chain-linked here? He has got four relative clauses. But number five talks about Christ's death on the cross. When Christ died on the cross, it was the demonstration of the fact that he had come come into time and space history. Give me one word for he came into time and space history. Incarnation. Incarnation. Very good. So verse 5 is talking about the incarnation. It is talking about something that happened to Christ in historical time. All right, let's begin with that. That is an incarnational Clause. What about the first four clauses? One, two, three, four. The who clauses. Are those incarnational clauses? Art, you're shaking your head no. What are? What kind of clauses are they? What label would you put on them? A lot of it's creational. They are they are what? Creational. They are creational. You agree with that, Stephen? Are they creational clauses? They are pre-incarnational, are they not? All right, so in number five, he moves to the incarnation. But through one to four, he's talking about what is before the incarnation or the pre-existent Son of God. So we have four relative clauses which are talking about the pre-incarnational pre-existence of the divine son. Which leaves number seven. We've moved from pre-incarnational, one, two, three, four, incarnational, number five. What is, what are six and, I'm sorry, six and seven? Now, let's keep our uh, vocabulary sim- uh, similar. Let's use the same categories. Yes, it is eschatological. Post-incarnational, correct. Post-incarnational. All right, notice the movement. From his pre-incarnate state to his incarnate state to his post-incarnate state. That's the sequence of this Chain link concatenation. Question. Okay, post incarnational. I, I, I see. I see it, but um, it seems to indicate that there's a, a point at which he's no longer in the incarnate form in that terminology. No, we're not. Incarnate, he is not incarnate. Incarnate, he is incarnate. Post incarnate seems to indicate that there's a distinction. Between 
between his incarnate form and his heavenly form, but there is Okay, you cut, cut me a little slack on the use of the terminology. <laughs> if, if, if you're going to push hard, yes, I admit. But we're simply indicating in terms of temporal relationship, this is after the incarnation. Okay? Now, that gives us our redemptive historical parabola again. Remember, we outlined this before. The movement of the Son from his preexistent before his incarnation to his incarnate state of purifying sins on the cross to his exalted state after the incarnation in time and space history. All right, now, the hot question that all the commentators battle about is when is the sun installed air? Pre-incarnational designation or post-incarnational designation? In other words, is the sun installed as air here or not here, but here. And what difference does it make? Does uh, Acts 13.33 come into play? Where there's a, where Paul quotes Psalm 2? Uh, yes, but wait till I have to deal with Psalm 2 next week. <laughs> right now, I want to... <clears throat> Just think about this question and why the commentators would be agitated about it. David, do you have a comment? Well, there's a difference between vesting in interest and vesting in possession. In a legal view, he was an heir prior to the incarnation, vesting in interest. The vesting in uh, possession of the inheritance would be I like that. But the commentators don't like it. Stephen? But is there an issue that, that, that uh, his heir, his being heir, is, is, is based on what he's done, he's declared heir? So what, what's at stake here? You've said it very well. What's at stake? His inheritance. No. No. What he accomplishes on earth? No. What's at stake? If this is not so, okay, but this is so, what's at stake? His relationship. Coach, you've got to say more part. What reminds me of Arius' teaching that uh, Jesus only came into being, I think it's Arius, Jesus only came into being when, uh, when he became man. Good. You're, you're, you're really close to the truth here. All right, what we have with uh, modern commentator flap about this is a Christological issue. What is at stake here is who is the Son of God? All right. Is he, as Stephen says, the Son of God because of what he accomplishes? In other words, is this an entitlement that he earns? Or is he a son of God by nature, prior 
essence and appointment or designation. Now, that's what's behind my complex language uh, in the middle of this handout, and I want to get into that and explain it. I don't want you to be put off by it. I want to be patient. We'll go through it. But I want you to feel the rub here. The liberal critical commentaries will not endorse a pre-existent exalted Christology for Jesus. They will not do it. He must earn it because Jesus of Nazareth is. He's not God. He's not God. No liberal believes Jesus of Nazareth is God. He may show you what God is like, but he is not God. Pardon? They can deny creation as well on that basis, yes. And you can see that even here in the text. But primarily, what they're interested in is they're interested in removing what they call superstition from Christianity. And they regard a divine Jesus as a superstition, a myth. Now, this is the dominant view of the interpreters of the book of Hebrews. That is... A, not a ontic Christology, but a functional Christology. A functional Christology is Jesus functions as the Son of God because he's entitled to it on the basis of what he does as a human creature. Not on the basis of what he is in his essence and being. You've heard of the Jesus Seminar. The Jesus Seminar routinely ridicules any notion of the deity of Christ. All liberals ridicule the idea of a deity of Christ. If you believe in the deity of Christ, you are not moving with the mainstream of the modern church, the modern liberal church, nor are you moving with the mainstream of the modern seminary intellectuals. All right, so you're standing outside of that, but you're standing on solid ground, not only in terms of Scripture, but in terms of the historic confessions of the church. Particularly those of you who still read the Athanasian Creed. Mm, What a gem. And if you have it and don't read it, repent of your sins. And get your congregation to read that thing at least a couple of times a year so that they hear the language, read the language, think of the language. You've got those ecumenical confessions, use them. Or am I the only guy that goes into Dutch churches and has them read the Athanasian Creed? And I'm not even Dutch. I don't think it'll work. <laughs> Denison Monk. Doesn't, doesn't, doesn't have much of a ring to it, does it? All right. Now, let's first address this issue. And I, I, you have to understand how crucial this is. Okay. The whole interpretation of Hebrews is going to go wrong here if we go wrong on this point. Okay? So, let's begin by asking, how do you know that this is right? Okay? It's not wrong, it's right. How do you know? Art? One way from what you just said in your outline 
this occurred in the pre-incarnation. Very good. Thank you for paying attention to the clues that were given to you in the previous outline. Excellent. Go to the head of the class. Yes. <laughs> All right. Now, the outline flows in this direction. Well, don't those liberals see that flow? They see the flow, but they say the flow is analeptic. That is, it is projecting what happens here back into the mythical past. So they won't accept it. All right, so they get off the hook that way. All right, I'm not going to let them off the hook, but for the sake of the right answer, we're going to say, okay, this is flowing out of the order of the clauses, isn't it? We don't get to incarnation until step number five. Very good. All right. Second of all, yes, Vernon? I'm sorry. How in the world do they square that with Proverbs 8, with a whole bunch of other Old Testament references to the creation of the God by the Godhead? Uh, because they argue that that is religious myth. Okay. They just want to deny creation outright, and that we get, get out of it. They can do that, too, but they want to talk about the myths of religious cultures, the, the myths of Jewish religious culture, the myth of Akkadian, Assyrian, Babylonian religious culture. And so they'll collect all those myths, and they'll say, you see, this is common myth. They all believe, because they were primitives, they all believed in a creation type of paradigm. But we don't. We're scientific thinkers. We're modern people. All right, now, the second thing, this, that, that how do you know should be put down for number two. That's what Art observed, namely the order of the clauses. But how else do you know that the proper paradigm is correct? Ben? But somewhere in Hebrews, I think it says that the results, I can't quote the verse, but it says it requires the death of the testator. That is true. Uh, we're not thinking about that so much as we're thinking about how we defend this comment that he is here, you see, in his same state of uh, exaltation as he is there. David? Well, Hebrews tells us Jesus Christ is saved yesterday, today, and forever. There is no change. So what are you saying about it? Who is he? Here he's talking about the Son. He's even used the word, right? Who is the Son? He is very God of very God. He is God, isn't he? That's that's the answer. In other words, number one here is who is the Son? The Son of God is God. Second person of the Godhead. They are obviously rejecting that. So, the doctrine of the Trinity, if they recognize it at all, is a later addition to the Bible. It does not come out of the Bible itself. It is the doctrine of the church. It is not the doctrine of the text. Pete? Verse 3. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Good. Hold on to that. All right, we're going to talk about that in detail later on. But it supports this identification of who the Son is. In other words, it supports this orthodox parabola. All right, now... <clears throat> I've got a lot of fancy words there, but 
I want to break those words apart. So be patient and follow. Let's begin with the parabola. And notice, once again, that if he is exalted here, okay, as the heir of all things, and he is exalted here with the inheritance of a name that is above the angels because he has sat down in glory at the right hand of the Father, then we have exaltation pre-incarnate, exaltation post-incarnate. It is not a question of choosing exaltation on the basis of what he performs alone. It is an exaltation that belongs to him by appointment of his ontological father. So how do we how do we describe or distinguish that exaltation on the basis of autothetic exaltation and theanthropic exaltation? All right, what does that mean? Let's start with autothetic. Besides leaving aside any of the theologians here, the seminary students, does anyone know what autothetic means? All right, theologians. God in himself. God in himself. Auto. Self-thetic from theos, Greek word for God. God in himself. All right, so this exaltation over here is an exaltation which the Son of God has because he is autotheos. He is God in himself. So he is heir of all things because he is the God heir of all things from all eternity. Now, the second word, theanthropic exaltation. Yes, Felicia? God, man. God, man. From theos, again, and anthropos, which means man. Now, here, the church has always put those two together. Hyphen, God, man. And theanthropic says it in one word. Puts them together. Okay? So, we're not denying the incarnation. Back to the previous question, pushing me into the corner on post-incarnation. See, if I use theanthropic exaltation, then I solve that apparent problem, okay? Because this has been inseparably joined to his divine nature. He is a theanthropic being at this point. But notice, you see, we do have a distinction in exaltation. The liberals are right to sense that there is a comparison or a relationship between these two states. The error is that they won't recognize that this is an autothetic state. He is God himself in his exaltation there before he is incarnate, and he is theanthropically exalted after his incarnation in the sitting, sitting at the right hand of the Father in the majesty on high. All right, now, to take another stab at it using different vocabulary. An hypostatic status and hypostatic status. All right, now, and hypostatic. What does the prefix and mean? Greek students? Is this like ana? Mm-hmm. No, again? No, I'm sorry, not ana. It's like the alpha privative. 
No, we're not. Correct. All right, so and hypostatic. He has no hypothesis. Okay, hypostatic means he has a hypothesis. Now, how am I using hypothesis here? Notice I am using it in parallel to autothetic and theanthropic. So an hypostatic means he has no what? No form. What kind of form? No form. No, what kind of form? What's the hypothesis here? God human. God human. Not human. All right, he has no human nature. Hypostasis here is being used to refer to his human nature. Now, we're borrowing the term from the later development of Christology in the early church, particularly at Chalcedon in 451. You don't need to be bothered by that. Students need to be bothered by that. You don't need to be bothered by that, although it'd be good for you to recite the symbol of Chalcedon every once in a while. Wouldn't be wrong for a foreign Protestant church to actually use that someday in a confession session of the church, which I've done, and I'm the only one that's ever done it. But at any rate, symbol of Chalcedon is the definitive expression of the relationship of the two natures in Christ, the so-called hypostatic union. All right, here... Hypostasis is being used in terms of his human nature. So an hypostatic means we are not talking about his human nature. We're talking about his status in his divine nature alone. Or I'm going to put in parenthesis ontic, O-N-T-I-C. An hypostatic ontic status. And hypostatic, which obviously now refers to the fact that he has a human nature, I'm going to put the word sarkic in there. Why am I going to put sarkic in there, Andy? From S-A-R-X. Body. Yes, Greek word for body. Okay, sarkic status. So, ontic versus sarkic status. That is, he has a human nature. Now, it would be better to have said he has a theanthropic status here. Now, uh, I'm surprised that someone that's had the Greek text in front of them isn't screaming at me yet. All right, now, why did I, why did I say that? Pete, a moment ago, read verse 3 up to the exact representation of his nature. And what is the Greek word in the text for nature? Hypostasis. So, Denison, what are you doing? Here is the writer using hypostasis to mean his human nature. Maureen? His divine nature. Exactly. But Denison saying that we're going to use hypostasis to talk about his human nature. What are you doing, Denison? I'm putting you right in the horns of Athanasius' dilemma. And the church's struggle after Nicaea over this term. When the church fought a battle for 50 years over hypostasis and whether it meant the divine nature or whether it meant the human nature. And the church resolved that debate before Athanasius' death and enshrined that debate in the Council of Chalcedon 70 years later in 451. What am I talking about? 
the Greek church in the East used the Christian word hypostasis after Nicaea to refer to the divine nature. But the Nicene Creed had expressed a phrase in Greek called homoousios. And they used the Greek word not upostasis, not homoupostasis, but homoousios, meaning of the same nature. In the Nicene Creed, as you recite it, of one nature with the Father, homoousios. So instead of using upostasis, Nicaea used ousia, O-U-S-I-A. You can see the confusion. If the Eastern Church, even around Nicaea, was using upostasis, hypostasis, out of Hebrews 1.3, that's where they were going to find it. And Nicaea uses usia in order to distinguish the doctrine of Nicaea from Arianism. We've got confusion and a huge, as I say, 50-year battle where those in the East are digging in their heels and hanging on to hypostasis and rejecting Usia and therefore rejecting the Nicene Creed, even though they agree that Arius is wrong. And Athanasius tries to persuade them, tries to, pers- to, to uh, uh, argue and defend the Nicene Doctrine, and they keep saying, but you say that it is not upostasis, it is Usia. And then come the three Cappadocians. Ah, Basil the Great, Gregory Nazianzus, and Gregory Nyssa. Then come the three Cappadocians, and they begin, Cappadocia is in eastern Asia Minor, they begin to seize the bull by the horns and do what Athanasius can't accomplish. They persuade the eastern church that Usia and hypostasis are synonyms the way they are used in the East. And therefore, the language of Nicaea stands with the understanding that what Nicaea meant in 325 is what you mean in 370 by hypostasis, the divine nature, the essence of the Godhead. Well then, How are we going to talk about his human nature? Well, now we're going to have to choose one word or the other and let it stand from here on. We're going to have to decide to agree on a vocabulary that will not lead to confusion. So first of all, we've been persuaded that hypostasis equals usia, and now we agree. Well, then how are we going to say what his human nature is if we're not going to say usia, if we're not going to say yeah, if we're not going to say usia. Now we're going to assign hypostasis to his human nature. And we're going to standardize the vocabulary from now on. We're going to exclude usia to his divine essence, and we're going to allow hypostasis to be used of the human nature. It is the reverse of Hebrews 1.3. Yes, it is. But nonetheless, it is a reverse based upon the use of the term. In that cultural context, and the persuasion that Athanasius and the Cappadocians had to mount in order to
to draw the eastern majority to defend Nicaea. Nicaea was never under attack in the west, never. But it was under relentless attack in the east. Arius made a comeback. In fact, he was ready to be reordained and reinstalled, but he died. Athanasius and the Cappadocians kept it from dribbling away. And so apostasis became the term that was, uh, it was decided by the church would settle the tension and the disagreement and the confusion. We will restrict apostasis to the human nature of Christ. We will restrict the term usia to his divine nature. And so with Nicaea, we will say homoousia, of one substance, one nature with the Father. And with the Athanasian Creed, of one nature with man according to the flesh. Upostasis. All right, now this exercise in the history of doctrine is not just simply an academic uh, reflection. You cannot imagine how churches were divided and convulsed through that 50, 70 year period in eastern, in the eastern part of the Roman Empire. People excommunicated one another over this. It was tragic. But the diligence and the hard work and the perseverance of Athanasius, Gregory Nyssa, Gregory Nazianzus, Basil the Great, that diligence healed the breach and brought the Eastern Church into accord with the Nicene Creed. When Chalcedon met in 451, they endorsed and repeated the Nicene formula in unison. Well, we have to live with this textual uh, irregularity. So I'm not uh, saying something here which is out of uh, order with respect to orthodoxy. You have to nuance it and understand the history of that orthodoxy in order to realize why upostasis in Hebrews 1.3 is not the same as upostasis in Chalcedon and post-Nicaea. Any questions or observations about that? I realize that that's more than uh, what what you're used to, but nonetheless, in the context of how the church has struggled through understanding this text, you have to have a feel for how it was resolved. Upostasis after Nicaea began to be assigned not to the divine nature, but to the human nature. For the sake of peace. Art? Would a question about the pre versus post exaltation that be appropriate at this point? A question about pre versus post exaltation? Sure. Uh, You you explained to us that there's both. Yes. But nonetheless, should we be concerned that verse 4 reads, so he became as much superior to the angels? As if that's happening post, as if he wasn't that before. Okay. Yes, you should be concerned. And I want to address that. Uh, I'm very good. You sense something here that uh, we have to elaborate. Uh, is he saying that that wasn't true here? Okay. All right. Let's, let's hold that in the back of our minds 
and uh, take a look at this uh, next section of the outline, namely ontological Christology versus functional Christology. We've already alluded to this, but these are the buzzwords in contemporary theology. Whether it's New Testament, Old Testament, or systematic theology, these are the buzzwords. The Jesus Seminar uses this vocabulary all the time. The liberals know that they are functional Christologists only. They are not ontic Christologists. What do we mean by ontic Christology? We mean son is God Christology. That's what we mean. Son is God Christology. He is the very being, ontos. He is the very being of God. Whereas functional Christology means that the son is man Christology. Son is man Christology. He is an exalted creature. He has earned his titles. He is called Christ or Messiah because he earned it. He is called Son of God because he earned it. It It's not a title that he had. It's not a nature that he had. It's something that he gained by being a good person, by being a good creature. But he is only a creature. He's a man He's a man. He's nothing but a man. Thank you, Jesus Christ, superstar. You understand what's underneath Weber and Rice. You get it, don't you? He's only a man. All right, well, what about the pilgrimage motif? Well, from the parabola, parabola, we can see the pilgrimage motif that I indicated is my thesis for the letter. Namely, that what we have going on in Hebrews is a journey a reflection of the journey of the former era and the journey of the latter days. But notice, the Son himself, the Son of God himself, participates in that journey. He is the pilgrim. He's the eschatological or ontological pilgrim. He comes out of eternity into time and space and returns to eternity. He is the definitive Hebrew pilgrim, sojourner. And at the beginning of this letter, our author makes that sojourn motif clear, even for God the Son. It'll jump out at us when he talks about the pilgrimage of the Hebrews in chapters 3 and 4, when he talks about the sojourn of Abraham in chapter 11. In other words, the pilgrimage motif is going to dominate this letter, but he is going to announce in the exordium that the Son of God is a pilgrim too. He went forth on a sojourn from eternity outside of time and space into history in time and space and return to eternity outside time and space in his post-incarnational exaltation. The exalted, autothetic God himself humbles himself to become a creature, to join to his divine nature a human nature theanthropically, and having completed that work, is exalted to the right hand of glory as the theanthropic exaltee. The parabola overlays the story of the Son of God himself. He embarks upon the parabola of the history of redemption. He conforms himself to the journey. 
which results in your salvation. If the pilgrims of the former age are conformed to traveling to the celestial city of God, then the Son of God himself will take upon himself the very same nature and journey. And he will do it on behalf of his pilgrim sons and daughters. Any questions or comments? All right, now, uh, we come to verse 3a, and I think uh, that I'll uh, stop here and begin there next week. So if there are any other questions or comments you'd like to raise, I'll be glad to take them. Uh, Otherwise, uh, you're welcome to leave if you wish. Benji, please. Um, Throughout this entire section here, and I assume you're going to get to this. Maybe I should just ask: Are you going to discuss why the angels here are yes. so important for us? Yes. Stephen. as Pete cited it earlier this evening, I want to look at verse 3 in terms of uh, symmetrical parallelism. David? Um, In the Jews of antiquity, how much understanding did they have when they lived of the Trinity. And I'm referring to uh, when Christ was talking to the Pharisees, he says, how is it that David, in the spirit, called him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. I I take it from that that King David had an understanding of the Trinity. At least uh, preliminary or rudimentary would be a better word. I agree. Um, the interesting thing, and it's a very good question, David. The interesting thing is there is no testimony, either in intertestamental rabbinical literature or in the literature from the commentaries of the Dead Sea Scrolls, in which the Jewish community recognizes any divine status to the one who is to be seated at the right hand of God. And this probably feeds their resistance to Christ himself proclaiming that reality to them. In other words, it is not part of their rabbinic or uh, historic tradition. 
So uh, this is a unique Christian uh, observation. This is a unique Christian uh, exegesis of that passage. And it has to stand on the basis whether it's true to the meaning of the ancient text as well as to the implication that Christ and the apostles draw from it. Now, I'm persuaded that that is sound, but the Jews rejected it. Uh, did reject it when Jesus proclaimed it, rejected it when the apostles declared it. Probably this writer is uh, directing this in some degree to a Jewish, to, to, to people that have a knowledge of that Jewish uh, uh, reality and attempting to demonstrate the uh, deity of Christ at, and that eternal deity from the uh, status of being son from the beginning. You know, you can find indirect testimonies to the deity of Christ in the way the rabbis interpret the prophets in some of their what are called Talmudic uh, expositions, uh, but not on this point, not on Psalm 110. Yes, Cheryl? Do I understand that the liberals make it sound like when that... Christ had to earn his place. Yes, because he's a creature. So he's, a, he's only a son of God in the sense of he's awarded that title because he does something to deserve it. Namely, he gives himself as a great sacrifice. In other words, he performs the great sacrifice of humanity. He gives himself up. He allows himself to die for the cause. But then he would still be a man. Yes, he is. He's still a creature. And he couldn't what? He could not bear our sins. No, he cannot save us. Correct. That, that is correct. But you see, salvation for them is simply the heroic example of Christ. It is not the atonement for sin. It is not bearing the wrath of God, because a, wrath, a God of wrath is a myth. The God of Jesus, Jesus is God, is gentle Jesus, meek and mild. That's his God. And that's what he's going to the cross to do. He's going to the cross to show you that a loving God is a God who allows a person to give up his life, even to violent persons who want to destroy it and kill him and murder him. So you give in to violence. You give in to injustice. That's how you defeat it. Yes, it's, it's, it's religious ideas. It's not religious truth. It's religious superstitions, ultimately. Because Jesus is only a man. That's all he is. Scott? Um, these commentators, I mean, obviously some of them have to do away with certainly verse 3 and what you're going to talk about next time. Uh, what about uh, what about those who are Orthodox who stick with an, this Orthodox interpretation of verse 3, um, but then might see verse 2 as actually talking about the exaltation when he's appointed as heir, so you go from appointing as heir to creation you know, backward in time to to eternity, and then you go back again to next creation, and then uh, then his death and, and, and resurrection again, as if there's kind of a 
folding in, folding out pattern. Yeah, the irony is that those evangelicals who are orthodox on verse 3 will uh, uh, weasel on verse 2. That is, they will say that verse 2 is a description of his post-exaltation, his post-crucifixion state. But exegetically, why couldn't that actually be the case that, that, that verse 2 is talking about the exaltation in terms of the pattern? I mean, I see the because pattern. the appointment or installation of the Son is coterminous with his definition. That is, he is Son, and he is given an appointment as Son before the creation, before he makes anything. All right, that's the reason I say this is an autothetic exaltation in verse 2b, whereas this is a theanthropic exaltation. The exaltation is there. Okay, as David pointed out, it is designation here, because as son, ontologically, he is appointed heir from all eternity. But that is a status he brings when he creates, when he upholds all things by the word of his power. That is, he provides for the creation that he creates. Okay. So it's, it's already present in him as a divine being. But the evangelicals, following the liberal popularity of this post-exaltation, this post-incarnation exaltation, read this back onto this and destroy what I think is the flow of the argument. Goes in historical order from, you know, that these are successive. Correct. And I'm just from saying, ontology to uh, exaltation after crucifixion and session. Go ahead. I'm just thinking textually, inductively. If you were to respond to them, I mean, a great. It's a great theological argument. But if you were to respond to them inductively, and they were to say, no, you can see the flow of the text is almost chiastic. I mean, without saying making it a proper chiasm where you start with the exaltation, then you go to the creation, you go from the exaltation backward to the creation, backward to eternity, then back to creation, and then again to exaltation. What is there anything in the text that would lead you to say, nope, that's not right, that just can't be the way it goes? Because there's no chiasm there. Uh, I worked with the Greek of this for a couple of weeks, trying to find a chiastic structure. Uh, there is no chiasm. <clears throat> the parallelism here is there, but it is a parallelism of complement. It is not a parallelism of mirror reflection. In other words, <clears throat> this is an expanded parallelism, which understands the paradigm of the parabola. That is, he passes through the process of redemption and humiliation to receive an exaltation here, which is in fact redemptive historical, whereas here... It is uh, ontological, pre-redemptive historical. So the pattern of the argument the author is giving is he's moving from uh, eternity ontologically to history to eternity post-incarnationally. Uh, so the exaltation is there, but it is by way of appointment as God here and by way of declaration as God here. The strong point you're making is no chiasm there. So the author would have put a chiasm there if he wanted you to see them as, as synchronous. Yes. Okay. okay. 
Ok. Bonsoir. Merci.